0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: If an election were held today, what would be the issue that would be at the top of your mind when you cast your ballot? Interesting new poll out today that tries to figure out exactly what is on the minds of Canadians. And to find out what is, Daryl Bricker joins us now, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Good morning, Daryl. Morning, Simi. All right, so let's talk about these results here. What are Canadians concerned about?
2: Well, the top five issues are health care, affordability, and cost of living, climate change, the economy, and then COVID-19. And the surprising thing about that list is until a month ago, COVID-19 would absolutely be at the top of it. And with vaccinations and things starting to open back up, maybe prematurely, or maybe people are prematurely excited about all of this, Um, It seems that the pandemic is moving into the rearview mirror and those uh, important issues from before are now finding their way back into uh, public consciousness.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So how quickly did that change? Because I know if you had done this, what, six months ago, COVID-19 probably would have been the top of the list.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'd say it's changed in the last two months. Um, We started to see COVID start to decline, but this is the first time we've actually seen it buried down at number five and four other issues layered on top of it.
1: And that's, I mean, it's not over yet. That's the other thing that's interesting about this, right? Like, we're not out of this pandemic yet, but clearly from your poll, it looks like people have stopped worrying about it as much.
2: Maybe stopped worrying about it, maybe learning to live with it, but also focusing on the fact that there are other things that are actually important for the world to be dealing with, For your, in this instance, for your political leaders to be dealing with. And those things are, in some instances, issues that were really exposed as problems as a result of uh, what we went through with the pandemic. So, for example, affordability and cost of living has risen up to number two as the most important issue. That's the first time I've ever seen that.
1: Right. I was curious about healthcare, too. So, healthcare is number one on the list here, and yet you've mm-hmm. got economy, you know, at number four, which I thought was interesting given that we are working our way out of the pandemic.
2: Right. Um, so, healthcare tends to be the perennial topper of the list. Uh, but uh, you, uh, looking at that issue moving back up to the to the top, I'm wondering if the character of the issue has changed. So, for example, things like uh, long-term care and how that's been exposed as a result of what we've been dealing with with the pandemic. So it may not just be a question of, uh, you know, people worried in general about the future of health care, which this issue tends to be about. It may actually be getting more specific in terms of public concern.
1: Right. And it, was it different depending on which party people said they supported?
2: Absolutely. So if you're voting for the Conservative Party, um, you're concerned about all things economic. Uh, If you're interested in voting for the Liberal Party, uh, you're probably more interested in issues like health care. And the NDP would be the issue that you are the party that you would look at if you're looking at something, for example, like affordability and cost of living. Now, the interesting thing is, and when you take a look at all of this, is that um, you would expect that uh, the issue that should be driving the campaign, which is pandemic response, no longer seems to be driving what's going on. It's the only one on which the Liberal Party really dominates, the other one being health care, which tends to be a bit of a nonpartisan type issue because nobody really feel, feels anybody's got a, a great solution on health care. But, you know, the Tories have clearly defined themselves as the party on the economy, the NDP clearly on the issue of affordability and cost of living, but the Liberals are attached to an issue that's declining in terms of public importance.
1: Interesting. So, do you think then this is going to impact how the election goes? I mean, if you're seeing that trend, that could really change things.
2: Exactly. And uh, assume the parties are seeing everything that I'm talking to you about today. They're doing more extensive polling than anybody is on this, so you can really see how the different parties will be able to campaign. Uh, uh, during the course of the next few months. So, for example, the Liberal Party will probably want to talk a lot more about its response to the pandemic, but it's going to have to work out something more effective on the economy because the Conservatives have an eight-point lead on that. Affordability and cost of living, you know, second most important issue in this poll. Uh, If the NDP is better positioned on that than the Liberal Party is, the Liberal Party's got some issues.
1: No kidding. All right, Daryl, thank you so much for that.
2: My pleasure. Thanks. Appreciate
1: your time this morning. Daryl Burker is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, and they've got a poll out this morning that essentially asked you, uh, if an election were held today, what would be the issue at top of mind for you? And they found number one was health care, then affordability, climate change, the economy, and then COVID-19, which is quite a difference. So essentially, things have reverted more to the way they were about, well, two years ago, right? In the fall of 2019, these are the big issue. Well, COVID-19 wasn't on that list then, but healthcare, affordability, climate change, economy, those were all kind of grouped up there. COVID-19 has kind of fallen down the list there. So it's a good question to ask you, too. I mean, we are headed towards an election. What is the issue that is going to help you to decide which party to vote for.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: History will be made this morning when the installation ceremony is held for Canada's 30th Governor-General. Mary Simon will be the country's first Indigenous person to hold the position. But thanks to the pandemic, the installation ceremony won't be with all that usual pomp and circumstance. So let's find out what it will look like. Joining us now is Global National Correspondent, Mike Armstrong. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Okay, so what is this going to look like today?
3: Yeah, it's going to be what we're used to, just pared down a little. Literally, only 44 people instead of 700 to 800 people packed into the Senate chambers. Um, and you know, you're going to have uh, the Prime Minister, the Speaker, four Cabinet ministers, uh, and then one MP from the NDP. Excuse me, one MP from the NDP, one from the Conservative instead of having all the senators there and most of the MPs, uh, much smaller. The other difference we're expecting today is sort of a a much more indigenous flavor to this um, event. Uh, Right away, we're going to have a drumming circle. There's going to be uh, a welcome uh, by an Algonquin at the end. uh, The procession out of the Senate chambers will be um, made behind a drummer, a traditional Inuit drummer. Um, So that's sort of the big change. Um, And the other thing that uh, Heritage Canada has been telling us is all of the safety protocols will be followed as far as distancing, uh, wearing masks throughout the ceremony and hand sanitizer and all of that.
1: Right. I understand they're also asking people not to line the streets. I'm sure a lot of Canadians would like to come out and see this kind of history-making day, but they're asking people not to do that.
3: Yeah, the Governor General herself governor general designate excuse me has said please watch it at home instead uh, there really aren't that many opportunities to see uh, much for the public, uh, but after the ceremony, actually, the Governor-General sort of uh, walks out of the Senate, and she'll walk across the street to the uh, War Memorial, um, where she'll lay a uh, wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. That would sort of be one of the few things that you'd actually be able to see and line the streets. After that, though, she does um, make her way to Rideau Hall, where she'll inspect the guard there. Um, But yeah, the Governor-General herself has said, you know, please join us, but join us online or on television.
1: Right, okay. And I, you mentioned some of the other things that they're doing. There's, I understand they're adding some sort of Inuit touches as well.
3: Oh, yeah, uh, a lot, actually. It's, it's going to be really something else. Um, the uh, One of the things right off the bat that they're going to do is... Light a, an Inuit uh, oil lamp, and that oil lamp will stay lit uh, throughout the entire service. Uh, that's one of the things. The other, as I said earlier, it really it's the drumming. I, I think we're going to, it's going to be something to see. There's a drumming circle that will be uh, going when the Governor General-designate enters the chamber, and then uh, one elder, Inuit elder, who will be drumming at the beginning and the end of the ceremony as well
1: do we have any indication as to what the themes of mary simon's speech will be at this point
3: reconciliation is uh, certainly one of them that uh, we were told uh, there was a sort of a briefing on friday and that was uh, the big one Uh, mary simon herself has described herself as a bridge uh, between uh, indigenous and non-indigenous canadians Um, her mother was an Inuit, uh, her grandmother as well, they were the, sort of her mentors and teachers that ta- taught her uh, pride in her community and also to, uh, gave her this passion for helping her community. Her father was a fur trader with the Hudson Bay Company, uh, non-Indigenous, and she said he's the person that sort of instilled in her, or taught her about uh, the non-Indigenous world and, and the South. So she might be the perfect person uh, to talk about reconciliation.
1: I was just thinking that too. Like that background just absolutely you know, talks about being Canadian and Canadian history in there. Uh, and despite the fact that there has been you know, some concern from, I guess, people in Quebec about the fact that she doesn't speak French, but she is certainly committed to to learning it, I understand.
3: She has. I mean, she's bilingual. She's just not the bilingual most of us are used to. She speaks English and inuktitut, doesn't speak French. The last governor general, actually, that didn't speak French was Raina Titian, uh, appointed by Brian Mulroney in 1990. There was criticism back then when that happened, actually. Uh, Mary Simon, we know, was shortlisted once as governor general, possibly twice. One of the things that probably worked against her was the fact that she didn't speak French. Uh, the fact Trudeau picked her has been called a political gamble because it there has been criticism in, in Quebec. Um, but some of that criticism has been called a colonialist insult as well. She speaks a language that has been spoken here and had roots here uh, for literally thousands of years, and Inictitut is one of the official languages of both Nunavut and the Northwest Territories.
1: Oh, so exciting! Such a historic day. Mike, thank, thank you, you so much for your time. Thank you. Mike Armstrong, Global National Correspondent, talking about the installation ceremony of the new Governor General, Governor General-designate de- at this hour, that is Mary Simon. Now, that ceremony starts about 8 o'clock our time this morning, so in about an hour and a half, and you will be able to, of course, watch that online and on TV. Uh, and again, there is there was an opportunity, usually, for people to stand on the street and see the new Governor General that they're asking you not to in this case. If you're in the Ottawa area, they're saying, Please just go ahead and watch on TV because they do have these pandemic restrictions that are still in place there. But, yeah, fascinating time. I know a lot of people will be watching that today. This
0: is Mornings with Simi.
1: In a few weeks, things are going to start to look pretty different, I think, in Metro Vancouver. You've got the lifting of restrictions for fully vaccinated Americans. Tourists are expected to start returning to our province. In fact, over the weekend, I was saying the New York Times travel section did a big story promoting Canada as a destination over Europe, and Metro Vancouver was on their list. One of the big draws of visiting the area, according to the Times, checking out all the great restaurants we have here. Now, that's a fantastic and amazing boost for restaurants, But not if lots of people show up and they don't have enough staff. Because good luck finding a restaurant these days that doesn't have a help wanted sign in the window. The industry is still struggling with a shortage of staff. For more on that, we're joined now by Ian Tossenson, the president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Good morning, Ian.
4: Hi, Sydney. How are you doing?
1: Good, thank you. How much of an issue is this right now?
4: Oh, boy, it's, you know, it's hard to get our hand around it, heads around it. But we estimate, so just to put it in context, we started uh, pre-pandemic with about 190,000 workers. And then, of course, we went through our gyrations in 17 months. We believe right now that we're short roughly 45,000 workers in the industry, both front of the house, which was you know, the server positions, and also particularly in, the, in kitchens. We had a shortage in kitchens anyways. Before the pandemic, and we had a very robust um, program bringing in skilled workers from uh, outside of Canada, but that slowed down as well, too, because of, you know, immigration and the pandemic. So um, I would say, um, Simi, it's probably a crisis in many ways. I mean, you necessarily wouldn't see it when you go into a restaurant. The industry is amazing at at, uh, holding its own. But it's really tough. I would think that every restaurant is is probably short, on average, two or three positions, four positions.
1: So when you think about, okay, the restrictions are going to get looser come August 6th, are you concerned about the industry?
4: Yeah, I'm listening to you and thinking, oh, no, it's awesome that New York said that. And you say, oh, but don't say it. <laughs> we don't need <laughs> that right now. But um, I think the, uh, the U.S. thing will be very manageable because they are going to be fully vaccinated. So I think travel will build in time. So I think that's all right. I think we have some things going in our favor here. Uh, you know, part of the problem has been that we've got a lot of sideline uh, people right now because of the Canada recovery benefits. So we've got um, people that are working minimal hours, but getting the federal benefit and you know, because they maybe don't feel like they're ready to go back to work. They don't think a frontline um, job is necessarily safe yet. Maybe there's going to be a fourth uh, wave. Don't know. I understand that because they've got to pay their bills and their rent but um that program comes to a sunset in september so a lot of people will be looking for jobs uh we'll see students returning to uh to BC and i was thinking about Whistler Whistler has had some major issues right now with labor but um if you think of Whistler typically Whistler is populated by a lot of Aussies that aren't there right now they all went home so as this returns to normal i would say that September, October, November, we'll start to see the pressure coming off. In the meantime, you've got owners and staff working extended hours. I was at, if you don't mind me saying, Dario's restaurant the other day. And they've been in business for four years. And um, beautiful Italian restaurant and family. And uh, the owner came out, uh, one of the owners, and uh, she said, I I said, where's your husband? She goes, he's in the kitchen cooking. And he's cooking six days a week. They can't get any cooks. And they look so tired and they are so tired and they've closed on Mondays. And so you're seeing restaurants adapting through changing hours, keeping their rest, their um, uh, menus a little bit simplified, maybe closing the odd day, uh, just doing things to really kind of keep it simple to execute. Yeah. Um, I mean, we are so fortunate um, to be back and. Um, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, because we were the hardest hit, we're faced with the strongest rebound, and that's where the demand for workers is, is so strong.
1: Right. I've, I've noticed that too, though. You made an interesting point there about, you know, restaurants are used to being open as, you know, seven days a week and all day long, and that's just not the case anymore, right? And I feel like restaurants are going to have to be more realistic about when they can be open.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, looking at, you know, at productivity, um, you know, we certainly you know, want to become the employers of choice. So for anybody that's thinking about going to get a restaurant job, go do it. It's a lot of fun. I was reading some Indeed ads for restaurants. And, I, and, and it's really interesting to see this restaurant. I worked there a lot of fun. I learned a lot. So there's a great life experience. But we're starting to see now businesses starting to do predictive schedules. So if, if Sydney works in my restaurant, you'll know that each week you work these shifts, and you can plan your childcare or whatever else you need around that, as opposed to me calling you, you know, excuse me, with two hours notice. Um, more perks, more benefits, more training, and more work-life balance. And so, I think that you know, as we institute that, the wages in restaurant. You mentioned that before the seven o'clock news, Simi. You know, the average server is probably making in a busy restaurant thirty-five to forty dollars an hour. That's with tips, so they're you know they're coming off of a minimum wage plus tips. They share uh, part of their tips into a tip pool, which means that the people in the kitchen are probably making, you know, 18 to $25 an hour themselves. So, you know, the, the perception that it's low-paying used to be the case uh, when, in our industry, but no longer. Uh, there's some very good opportunity to make some good money in a restaurant as well, too.
1: Right, it, it, it feels like um, the, the line cook, like the cook, the, the chef, those jobs back in the kitchen are the ones that I was reading the Indeed ads, too. And it seemed to me there were a lot of line cook ads there.
4: Oh, it, unbelievable. We, we brought in 1,000 skilled workers pre-pandemic, and our immigration consultant, who I love, um, and he's, he's lined up. I mean, we've got orders for 1,000 or 1,500 people, and we can't get them in for probably six months. But these are wonderful, experienced people, and it's part of the immigration plan in Canada, that are coming here to get work experience, so they stay with that employer for two years. They work so well. And they become Canadian citizens because if you look at Canada's population, the only way that this economy grows is through immigration. It's not a bad word, it's a great word, but it's been slowed. So uh, countries that we recruit from, like the Middle East and India, a lot of the, um, the embassies there are slow in processing just because of the pandemic. But that's starting to come back online. And we'll also start to see foreign students coming back, which was another form of, of uh, labour for restaurants. So it's a timing issue. And I think that, um, you know, any, any of uninjured listeners send me just be a little patient with us if we're a little bit slow. Or, You know, um, I've been to restaurants that I love that went, what, they're closed? Uh, that's going to be like that for the next several months until we uh, continue to get our confidence and our feet in the ground.
1: Right. So if somebody is looking for a job, then what, what kind of pay can they expect, Ian?
4: Well, I mean, minimally, minimum wage, that's a starting point. Um, but there'll be uh, the gratuities on top of that, and that's where it gets interesting. So if you're a server, uh, well, well, you know, if you're, if you're working in front of a restaurant, first-time job, you're going to get minimum wage. If you're a server with some experience, you're going to get, you know, minimum wage plus, you know, tips, which could get you anywhere, from, say, from 25 to $40 an hour. And the same thing in the kitchens is probably up to $25 an hour, including tips, so it's pretty good. And I would also say, you know, um, employers have ads on Indeed, but they're going nowhere. No one's getting any, absolutely no no applications at all. So I would just uh, put a nice shirt on and go down and visit your favorite restaurant that you like in your neighborhood, knock on the door and say, I'd like to work for you. I'd like to get some experience. I'd like to do this for a period of time. And I guarantee you're probably going to get a job and you're going to really enjoy it.
1: You know what? That's actually really good advice. I know somebody who did exactly that. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning, Ian.
4: Okay, Sydney so we'll Talk to you soon.
1: All right. That's Ian Tostanson, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. We are talking about jobs this morning because they are available, especially in the hospitality industry. You've got restaurants looking for people and you've got the hotel industry Definitely looking for people. We are just weeks away from more tourists showing up here now that, uh, you know, American fully vaccinated tourists can come to Canada for non-essential travel starting August the 6th. Where are they all going to stay? How can hotels get up to staff? What jobs are available out there? Joining us now for more on that is Walt Judas, CEO of the Tourism Association of BC. Good morning, Walt. Good morning, Simi. Are we expecting an influx of people post August 6th?
0: Well, we're certainly hoping so. We, uh, we expect that people are anxious to travel back to British Columbia, back to Canada. And we're looking forward to welcoming people, particularly from our neighbours to the south. But of course, we're already seeing much travel around the province and within the province from people from within British Columbia and other parts of Canada as well.
1: Right, but we're already kind of running short staff, aren't we? How are the hotels ramping up in terms of employment
0: Well, they're desperately looking for people, as we know, and in fact, some hotels can't open all of the available rooms simply because they don't have enough people available to service them, but I think they're all doing the best they can, and we're certainly trying to talk to guests about tempering their expectations. In fact, I was in Kelowna recently and staying at a local hotel, and when we checked in, they said, look, you won't receive any room service until day four. And that was okay with us. In fact, we didn't ask for any room service the entire time that we were there. And uh, we understood the predicament that they're in, but the hotels are all doing their best, as are other operators. We were also in Princeton having lunch at a local restaurant. And it took a long time to get service and to get our food, but we understood they were short-staffed and those that were working were working their tails off.
1: Is that something we're all just going to have to get used to, Walt, that especially the room service issue? Because I've been reading about this, that that could be a permanent thing post-pandemic.
0: Yeah, and it's not a bad thing either. It's not necessary for uh, people to be changing sheets every night. And, uh, you know, you think of the energy and the time that that, that consumes and the cost, etc., um, that might be a permanent thing, and certainly at some hotels, they have uh, implemented that already. But as I say, it's not a bad thing, and, and uh, perhaps that's what we need to expect in future. And, um, and hopefully people will accept that. I think it's, uh, it's entirely doable. And as I said before, we need to temper our expectations when we visit a tourism establishment uh, in the days ahead.
1: Right. What about some of the attractions? you know, are they up and running? Are they ready to go if tourists start showing up again?
0: Yeah, they are. And in fact, uh, you know, all the way along in anticipation of things opening up, they've been recruiting personnel and certainly brought some of their existing staff that were furloughed or sidelined back. They are recruiting for additional people, but many of these operations aren't yet up to full capacity. In fact, We know that without international visitors, they won't be able to operate at full capacity. They need that international element to uh, generate the kinds of revenues to hire back all of the people that were employed prior to the pandemic. So it's a gradual process and we won't see sort of normalized operations as we've talked about before for at least three to five years.
1: Three to five years. Wow. Because like we've got tourists starting to arrive next month.
0: We do, but again, that's limited volume, and we have major segments of the visitor economy that still really aren't open. We don't have crews. Uh, The meetings and events sector will take a long time to ramp back up. Festivals and events, sporting events, things that people are coming into town for will take a while before we see, again, full capacity. So uh, it'll be a gradual process. Hopefully it'll happen sooner than later, but the anticipation is we won't see the pre-pandemic numbers until uh, 2024, 25, or or perhaps even later than that.
1: Wow. So, Walt, if people are, are thinking about getting into this industry, if they're thinking about looking for a job there, what what area should they look in? What is the most uh, area that needs the jobs the most right now?
0: Well, you were talking with Ian earlier, and he talked about the need in restaurants, particularly for cooks and chefs, but there are also retailers that need personnel. There are skilled positions, too. I think if you look at GoToHR or any of the other online job boards that uh, are posting tourism and hospitality jobs, you will see that there is management personnel. There are sales and marketing experts that are needed people who have IT and communication skills. I mean, we're an industry. People often think it's only low skilled or low paying jobs. And Ian referenced this as well, but it's really a variety of jobs, including engineers. There are landscape architects. There uh, are the IT positions that I referenced earlier maintenance. It's, it's so diverse that all of those jobs are available now throughout the province. And, uh, we are desperately trying to find the people to fill those positions.
1: Are you uh, optimistic about, you know, the the last part of this year, that if international tourists and American tourists come back, that the rest of this year might pick up a little bit?
0: No question, we're optimistic, but we've already lost a significant part of the year, as you can appreciate. We're uh, just about at the end of July, and um, we're only still seeing domestic visitors, and that's not enough to carry the sector really through to the end of the year really depends on um, on how many people are going to visit from places like the united states and until we see further international visitation and some of the sectors opening up uh, fully that's when we'll start to see a recovery but i suspect that for a lot of operators uh, this year will again remain difficult and what we've seen so far in terms of visitation is not enough to sustain them and some in fact have not bothered to even open at all. There are many in the adventure tourism side where their guests are almost exclusively international. And uh, with the uncertainty about when borders would reopen, many of those guests have cancelled or gone elsewhere or stayed at home. So it's not enough yet to save the sector, but it will certainly help, no question.
1: All right, Well thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. Walt Judas is the CEO of the Tourism Association of BC. Uh, yeah, there's still a lot of trouble. They are struggling to fill those jobs. The job board that Walt mentioned there to go2hr.ca.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: The southern part of our province could really use some precipitation, but we haven't seen it for weeks and it is not in the forecast anytime soon, which is why our wildfire situation is so bad. We've got more than 250 wildfires that continue to burn around the province. But how is the growth going? Are we able to fight back on some of these? We've got about mm, 4,400 people under evacuation orders right now, but you've got another couple of thousand who remain on evacuation alert. So let's find out what the fire situation is like right now. Joining us is Noel Kakula, who's a fire information officer for BC Wildfire Service. Noel, thank you for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. So where are the areas of concern today? <laughs> uh, the southern half of the
5: province. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, sorry. I mean, that's that is the reality we've got. The north, uh, thankfully, has received some precipitation, but um, down here, especially in the Kamloops Fire Center, we are still continuing to see uh, the growth on the. Fu- there is still growth on the fires, and a few new starts, and we continue to um, fight the good fight.
1: Are there some is there some fires of concern in particular areas like which ones are you really keeping an eye on? Well, of course we've got our wildfires of note pages. Uh I think we've got
5: 17 if I remember correctly on that. So those are our high profile ones. And those all stem around the the triaging piece of it. Our when we when we hear of a new incident, uh we we base it on a priority um, of, of a triage with people, with life, property, critical infrastructure, and then resources. So that's how we prioritize where we are, you know, our high-priority sites or fires are. Um, and so it's always, we've got many that have a lot of um, homes on uh, at risk, hence all those evacuation orders and alerts that are in
1: effect. Okay, and what's the Isoya is situation like?
5: Uh, it. It's. It was starting to, it, we saw some activity on it. Actually, we saw activity on a lot of our fires yesterday. There was a bit of a wind. Um, and so we are seeing minimal growth. We are seeing, but at night especially, you do see the flames and the fires look especially um, threatening at nighttime.
1: Okay, so still nothing that is kind of substantially under control. So do you see anything Anything changing soon? Like, what's the wind situation like for the next couple of days?
5: Yeah, we we all have our fingers crossed that the wind will stay minimal. Um, but Mother Nature, just in itself, with the valleys, you know, the Lytton Valley, the the bottom end uh, of of the Tremont Fire. We, we've got, and and especially in the Okanagan, the winds with the valleys, they are always a factor that we are monitoring, um, but we still, like you said, there was no, there's no precipitation in the forecast, so we will keep, um, keep working at it, and thankfully, we've got uh, incoming resources from our partnering agencies, so that's been, that's been a nice to have that extra resource coming in.
1: Yeah, what kind of resources? Uh,
5: f- the firefighters and, uh, f- from, from various agencies and locations. Um, so we continue to utilize, uh, those, those agencies. Um, we continue to work with our, our industry, uh, reps with their heavy equipment. Um, and we just, that's, we're gonna keep working with with all our indis- or our partners and keep um, looking for those resources.
1: Okay, so then Noel for now, it sounds like it is a holding pattern.
5: Yeah, that's that makes me nervous to say that. But yes, that that we you want to knock wood, right? To, yeah, <laughs> yes, that does make me want to do that. Um, I mean, there we did take on some lightning. There's always dry lightning in the forecast, um, not always, but we're we're always watching for that. And again, that wind and the um, lack of precipitation.
1: All right, well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for you, well, Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Appreciate that. Noel Kakula is a fire information officer for BC Wildfire Service. Knock wood that it stays like a holding pattern. They don't want things to get worse. They don't want the wind to pick up. Uh, they, you know, nothing expanded dramatically over the weekend. That is good news. And when you think about it, Normally at this time of year, like heading into the BC day long weekend, this is when we would be hitting peak wildfire season, but we've already been in it for a month now. So a break, yeah, they could definitely use that. And we'll continue to keep you posted on that. But right now you're looking at about 250 or so wildfires continuing to burn mainly across the southern part of this province and no sign of precipitation in the forecast.